Good morning, Mars Hill. If you have your Shed Bible, turn to page 1081. 1081, and we're reading from Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. Hey everyone, and the Lord be with you. Um, hey, my name is Troy. Happy to be one of our pastors. I've, uh, I want, I want to say if. It doesn't matter if you've been around here a long time or you're just showing up here today for the first time. I hope that one of the things that becomes really clear to you this morning is that we are a church that is not interested in covering up our humanity. We're not interested in photoshopping flaws away. (laughs) We're not interested in covering up small little missteps. We're not interested in trying to put forward some kind of front of perfection. I have no interest in playing that game or being a part of that kind of place. And so I sit in my, or stand over in my spot smiling today that we bring ourselves naturally into this place, both as people who are coming to gather for worship and those who are here to lead our worship. I'm grateful to be a part. I have been, and maybe you have, I've been a part of places that would have penalized a misstep of a six second gap where someone didn't know where they were supposed to be. <laughs> I've, been at the, I've, been at, I've been at those places. I am not interested in that. I think that what happens in this space and the ways that we hold space together ultimately forms us into the people that we become. And so I hope that in those kinds of moments um, that we can quickly move past that level of, what's happening? And we step really quickly into, thank God, that all of us get to bring our full selves into this space. Yeah. That was for free. Uh, You're welcome, unplanned. (laughs) Um, We are crossing over the halfway point um, in this letter to the Ephesians. I want to reinforce where we have been particularly over the past three weeks as we've stepped into the first three chapters, bless you, three chapters of this book. Um, The writer of this letter, Paul, he is trying from the very beginning to establish a foundational spirit of worship. He wants the spirit of worship to cast a shadow over everything in this book. And he's seeking to foster an imagination for what is new in Christ. 
and he's cementing the source of all of this generosity and all of this goodness in God's power. We've made our way from chapter one, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, through the end of chapter three, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, now and forever, amen. And Paul's been stressing that the power of God, it is at work within us, that we have indeed been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, that out of God's glorious riches, the Spirit gives strength in our inner being, that a new reality has been created, a new humanity where there once was division and hostility, and this new humanity is included in Christ, is marked and sealed by the Holy Spirit, and all of this is because of the glorious grace of the Father, grace which has been freely given to us in the one that he loves it's a stunning run of proclamations over the first half of this letter. And then we get to chapter four. And it's like, on the surface anyway, like a big shift takes place. The first half of this chapter, it deals with unity in the body of Christ. Now, the last time that I taught, I told you that I only have one sermon. And essentially, my one sermon is this, the church being actualized and the church being unified. I'm not going to give you that sermon again today, thanks be to God. But please, read the first 14 verses of chapter 4. Study it and look at it yourself. It's so inspiring. What I want to do is turn our attention to the second half of chapter 4 and look at what that has to say to us. And I want to begin this way. I don't like the heading that's been included in chapter four. Now, that's not canonical, so there's not a lot of time we need to spend here, but I'm going to. I don't like the italicized words that start at verse 17. In the NIV and the TNIV, it says, instructions for Christian living. I don't like that. I don't prefer that. Um... I want us to consider for a couple of minutes a slightly different perspective as we step into the final half of this letter because that is a heading that really summarizes from verse 17 of chapter four all the way to the end of the book. I want us to consider a slightly different perspective. Let me see if I can make a case for this. Our daughter Maggie turns three on July 1. Yeah. Um, this is an unbelievably fun season that we're in. Um, she's incredibly verbal. Liz and I have no idea where that has come from. And her little rational mind is kicking into high gear right now. It's fascinating. Here's one of my favorite kinds of episodes right now in our life. Um, let's say Maggie's eating a strawberry. In this picture, it's like the world's largest ever strawberry, but she's also small. 
but she's eating a strawberry, and she and I are talking about how good strawberries taste. (laughs) And I say to her, Maggie, is this your favorite fruit? And she looks at me with shock and surprise, and she says, Daddy, this isn't fruit. This is a strawberry. And this kind of thing happens with other stuff too. She'd be like, Daddy, that's not a bird, that's a crow. Or Daddy, that's not a flower, that's a rose. And I realize in those kinds of moments, the sort of complicated world that she has entered. A complicated world where not all fruit are strawberries, but all strawberries are fruit. In a world where not all birds are crows, but all crows are birds. In a world where not all flowers are roses, but all roses are flowers. And to negotiate that, the reality that some things can be multiple things, that's hard. And it's true in our religious Christian life as well. How many of you have heard or said something like this? Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. Now, I get the impulse, I understand it, I connect with it. For many of us, even the category religion is a tough one. We associate religion with rules and regulations and having to get everything right. And over time, that becomes really burdensome for some of us. And so we seek to find another framework for this Christian faith. And so what happens is we elevate relationship. That's the thing that actually really matters. And so when we come to a part of the Bible like this, and you read in italics the words instructions for Christian living, well, that can be a hard thing to come up against, particularly if your primary understanding of Christianity is that it's a diminishment of or a dismissal of, a rejection of, or a reduction of rules and regulations. You might be tempted to really celebrate the first half of Ephesians with this concentration on love and faith and grace, but then really bristle at the second half of Ephesians when it turns to instructions and imperatives and do this, don't do this kind of tone. And then I have another hesitation with this heading. And it's because some of us, and this includes me, because some of us some of us have a tendency toward moralism. uh, Toward a kind of moralism that becomes overly obsessed with following the rules with ticking all the biblical boxes. And some of the drive, some of the force behind that, certainly for me, some of the drive and force behind that moralism is because we can believe that obeying all the rules is a way to earn or to strive for the love of God. That that can be a pathway to prove that we are worth being loved by God. 
And both of these impulses, the impulse either to diminish or to overemphasize rules and regulations, both of these impulses, they need a little tweaking. They need some correction. And so I find headings like instructions for Christian living to be a little problematic and a little to work against that. Um, So I wonder, I wonder if we could look at the remainder of this letter to the Ephesians, not as instructions for Christian living, but rather we could look at the rest of Ephesians as demonstrations of what it's like to be alive in Christ. Maybe the intention here is not to lay out more rules and more regulations. Maybe the heart of the words we're going to read and hear is bigger than one guy trying to make sure everybody else is living correctly. Maybe the spirit, actually I'm going to say it differently, I believe wholeheartedly that the spirit that began this letter, the spirit of worship and adoration and confidence in what has already been accomplished in Christ, that that same spirit continues through the second half of the letter. I believe that the words we're going to look at these next three weeks are not intended to be heavy yokes. not intended to be heavy yokes placed on our shoulders. These are not intended to be ways that we prove that we are Christian or that we deserve to be called the children of God. Friends, you and I will never, ever earn the free gift of God. You and I will never ever do enough to justify God's goodness towards us. That's good news. Maybe in the words of one of the the church's historic mothers, Julian of Norwich, she said, for he, God, is the endlessness, and he hath made us only to himself, and restored us by his blessed passion, and keepeth us in his blessed love, and all this is of his goodness. We are alive in Christ because of God's work, not our efforts. And so I believe that a more compelling vision of the words we're going to see throughout the rest of Ephesians is in the way that they give us a glimpse They give us a glimpse of what being fully alive in Christ looks like. Rather than cause us to groan under the weight of more expectations, or rather than us being a reason for us to strive harder to prove that we are worthy, these are words that can create in us imagination and create in us desire for fullness in Christ to be actualized and realized in our lives. That's what I want us to consider as we look at the remainder of these words. I don't know where this came from. I can't remember. I tried to track it down this week, so I'm going to say it anyway because I really like it. I don't think Paul is giving directions, but I think he's providing direction. He's not giving directions. He's providing direction. I think Paul is pointing to what is possible in Christ. 
He's pointing to the power, the power that he said raised Christ from the dead and the power that is now actually available and operative in and to you and I. That very power can produce in us great things when we cooperate with the work and the activity of the Holy Spirit. I think that's what's on display for us. I'm praying that over these next couple of weeks that there would be some people in our church who would experience new freedom. New freedom when we encounter the final paragraphs of Ephesians. Whatever effort we spend seeking to follow Jesus, it's not in service to proving anything. And it's not in service to accomplishing some kind of spiritual to-do list. All of our efforts are to be always and only in response to the gracious work of God in Christ for us and in us. Our efforts are an extension and a continuation of our worship of God. Okay. That being said, what does Paul say in the second half of chapter four? He kicks off this long section. He uses a central metaphor And then he takes a long time to unpack it. Basically three more chapters. And we heard it a couple minutes ago when Susie read it for us. Paul talks about putting off and putting on. Um, Verse 22, you were taught with regard to your old self, your former way of life, to put off the old self. And then verse 24, put on the new self. The new self that was created in Christ to be like God. Okay, there's so much to unpack here. First, scholars think that maybe what's happening with this put-off, put-on metaphor, that Paul is borrowing a Roman cultural practice. Uh, I wrote it down here. Let me make sure I can get it right. It's in Latin. Toga virilis. You're welcome. Toga virilis. It was a ritual for young men. Young men would reach a particular age, and they would trade in the clothes that they've been wearing for a brand new toga, animal house, right? And they would wear that toga for the rest of their lives. And the toga, the changing of clothes, would mark a new identity, that you had reached maturity. And it also marked that alongside of that new identity, you were choosing to begin living in particular ways. You're going to pursue very particular virtues and practices. There's a culture where clothing communicated something about your identity. And so scholars wonder, maybe Paul is borrowing this cultural practice, toga virilis, and he's inviting these Christians to do something similar. The language to put off and to put on, it ends up being as much about living into your true identity as it is about stopping or starting certain behaviors. Be who you have been taught to be. What's to be put on is the new self, not just new behaviors. 
not just new practices. And then Paul makes this audacious claim. It's this claim that the new self that we put on is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We are to put on the new self, and the new self has quite a purpose. The new self's purpose is to be like God. Does that make anyone uncomfortable? When you read that, honestly, does that make you uncomfortable? Is that hard to believe? I asked someone this week this very question, and the response was, well, that sounds like I'm being asked to pretend. It seems hard to believe that in Christ, our new self is to be like God. Paul uses this language in other places, similar language in other places. He's already said in Ephesians chapter 2, which we covered a couple weeks ago, that we are God's handiwork, that we are a new work of art. He talks about us being new creations in multiple letters. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, a verse that we talk about a lot around here when we refer to our discipleship plan. Paul says that you and I are being transformed into Jesus' image with ever-increasing glory. There seemed to be a lot of imagination for being like God. One of the early church fathers, I'm going back again for you, friends. One of the early church fathers took Paul so seriously that he made this claim. The son of God became man so that we might become God. That's a big vision. That's a vision, quite frankly, bigger, so much bigger than the one that I have for myself. It's a vision that challenges what most of us probably have. Do you imagine your new self in Christ this way? Do you imagine your new self in Christ as being created to be like God? Know this. Know this to be true. That the goal of your life in Christ is bigger than your small vision for it. The goal of your life in Christ is bigger than just lying a little bit less or being less sarcastic or less snarky. The goal of your life in Christ is bigger than going to that website fewer times this week. The goal of your life in Christ is bigger than being more patient when you drive through Michigan construction this summer. The goal of your life in Christ is bigger even than you reading your Bible more this month. These are all really good things. But the vision of your life in Christ is much bigger and much more beautiful. The vision for your life in Christ is to actually be like the one who made you. We were created to be like God in whose image we were originally made and into whose image we are constantly being remade. Anyone want to be part of that? Yeah. Okay, then in verse 25, we get to the practical stuff. 
Paul starts giving practical expressions about what being alive in Christ, what it looks like when we cooperate with the work of God in our lives, when we put off the old self and we put on the new. So in chapter three, uh, we got covered last week, Paul prayed a couple of specific things. He prayed for strength. He prayed for strength in our inner being and he prayed for an awareness, an awareness for the unthinkable love that God has for us. And it's in light of that power that strength and that awareness that I think Paul then says it's that power and that awareness that propel us to stop lying and speak truthfully. It's that power and awareness that propel us to deal in real time with our anger, to not let it become a fixation, to not let it simmer. It's that power and that awareness that propel us to stop stealing and instead offer up useful work so that we can be generous with one another. It's that power and that awareness that propel us to stop unwholesome speech and to offer up only words that will build each other up. It's that power and awareness that propel us to avoid resisting the power of God through the Holy Spirit and to return to the promise of God, the promise that was made in a seal when we were baptized into Jesus. It's that promise, that power, and that awareness that propel us to address and to dismiss all bitterness and rage and anger and fighting and slander and malice. And it's that power and that awareness that propel us instead to be kind and compassionate and forgiving. Paul gives a glimpse from 25 to 32, of what it looks like to be alive in Christ. Seeking not to earn anything, but to respond to and to cooperate with the powerful work of God. You and I do nothing to make the new self a reality. You and I do nothing to make it a reality. We do nothing to deserve the new self in Christ. And yet, the ways we use our words matter. The ways that we interact with one another matter. The ways that we cooperate with what God is doing in us and through us matter. That's where Christianity can be multiple things. That's where it becomes hard to negotiate. But keeping the emphasis on a response to is life-giving. So I, I want to end here. I want to end with a simple consideration. I want to borrow Paul's central metaphor, central challenge, and ask you to answer these two questions. Over the past six to 12 months, what have you sought to put off? And over the past six to 12 months, what have you sought to put on? As a response to God's great love for you, and as you are empowered, and as you are called by this great love, this great love in Christ, what have you sought to put off, and what have you sought to put on? So by way of example, I'll go first. Uh, back in August, I had a really distinct moment of prayer 
where I sensed, I heard a very specific word given to me from God. And the word was gentleness. He said gentleness through his partial cry. The word was gentleness, in case you didn't hear. And I heard it, I understand it now, actually. I understand it now as that was an invitation to put gentleness on. And it was a moment of revelation for me. It was a moment where I realized this, the number of ways that I don't interact kindly with people. The number of ways that I'm impatient and that I'm, I'm dismissive and I'm judgmental and I'm quick to speak and I'm quick to anger. And so since August, I've been praying that my life would be more marked by gentleness and that my impulse toward this would not be to prove something, would not be to even to my own self to justify that I deserve to be loved, but that my impulse and my desire for gentleness to be realized in my life would be from a heart of gratitude for all that God has done in and through me. Another person in our community this week shared with me that they desired to put on honor toward their coworkers and their family. Another person invited me to pray with them that they would put off selfishness. I wonder, over the past six to 12 months, or maybe you need to forecast over the next six to 12 months, what will you seek to put off? And what will you seek to put on? Not as a way to prove that you're a serious Christian. Not a way to prove that you're worthy of the high, wide, long, deep love of God in Christ. But simply as a way of responding to that great love and cooperating with the power of God as you are being transformed, hear it, you are being transformed into Jesus' likeness with ever-increasing glory. As we think about those things, as you consider them, and as we turn to the table, I pray that out of God's richness and out of God's mercy, we would each uniquely be fed and strengthened and nourished. And I want to let you know that I'm going to pray for those of you who sense the call to put something off. I'm going to pray that in the absence of whatever behavior or pattern or habit or disposition you are going to leave behind, that in that absence you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt the presence and the fulfilling reality of God. And for those of you who sense that God is going to call you to put something on, I'm going to pray that in the uncertainty of new practices and in the uncertainty of new ways of being in the world, 
that you would know God's wisdom and you would know God's guidance. And I pray for all of us that this morning, these simple physical elements that we're going to take together, that they will remind you, they will remind us of the great promises of God and they will renew within us our desire to be fully alive in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I say to you, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And so out of an abundance of gratitude and thanksgiving, let's pray together. How right and a good and a joyful thing it is at all times and in all places to give thanks to you, God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And therefore we join our voices with angels and archangels, the entire company of heaven, who forever surround your throne, and they sing this hymn of praise to the glory of your name. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so Holy Spirit, as we open ourselves up, we invite you to shine light into our darkness. We also ask that you would, by these simple elements, in a mysterious way, fill us up. Give us what we need to step more into being fully alive in Christ. Free us from burden. Free us from obligation. Free us from spirits of moralism. And invite us in a fresh new way into cooperation with you. Into cooperation with our being transformed with ever-increasing glory into the likeness of Jesus. Thank you for your presence with us. And amen. We know the story is that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, they had a meal with his friends, his disciples, and he took bread and he broke it. And he said to his friends, this is my body, and it's broken for you. So take this and eat it. And then in a similar way, he took the cup, and he blessed it. And he gave it to them and he invited them to drink. And he said, this cup, well, this is the new promise. It's the renewal of the original promise given to you, given to you through and in my blood. So the invitation was to take and to eat and to drink. And every single time this is done, the story is told again. The story of being alive in Christ. The story of being freed from your own efforts and being invited to cooperate with the work of God through the Holy Spirit so that each one of us might be remade, 
renewed. We take these elements into our body as another physical reminder of that promise. And a story we try to tell in these simple, winsome phrases, a summary of this good news, and we speak these words together. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. So we invite you to come and to be served here, to come to each one of these tables. There are allergen-free elements at each one of those. To submit a prayer request in the wall, there are folks who are willing and able to uh, be present with you to pray. We're going to sing. Let's enter into a few moments together where we are re-inspired, where we are refed, and where we are renewed by the love of God. So friends, come and receive who you are the body of Christ.